Is this kunzite as well? Or? This one? Uh, it's lithium. This is lithium. Taktapat. This is reporter Jerry Shee, embedded inside a DIY mine in the mountains of Afghanistan. It's dark, but all around him is this white rock. It's everywhere. They call it taktapat, which means it's basically waste kunzite. Waste kunzite. That's what the local miners call it. It's waste to them because they can't sell it. At least, not right now. You know, this ore was trash. It was waste. It, it had no value. They just basically toss it over their shoulders and, and, you know, they keep it in like a discard heap. But around the world, this raw material is valuable. It contains lithium, an essential part of the massive green transition to electric vehicles. Under the current technology with which we're producing electric car batteries today, lithium plays an absolutely uh, central role in producing these batteries that lets your EVs travel 200, 300, 400 miles. But to make one Tesla battery, for example, it may require something like 120 pounds of lithium. And so if you were to extrapolate how much ore that would require, you know, that would be sort of well into the tons, possibly. I know I've seen more Teslas and Polestars and Chevy Bolts on the road than ever before. And these cars are fueling a very lucrative market for this mineral that makes them run. Back in about 2020, 2021, 2022, we saw the price of lithium skyrocket. In fact, industry insiders have told me that they believe that uh, the world's supply of lithium by 2030 will not be able to meet demand. That's less than a decade. And so there's a lot of money to be made here, and there's a lot of interest in this resource. So what happens when some new players want in on the supply chain? Players like the Taliban. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Chris Velasco, your guest host today. It's Wednesday, September 6th. As the world transitions to electric cars, states like California and New York are moving to ban the sale of new gas-powered cars over the next decade. Meanwhile, President Biden wants at least half of all new car sales to be electric by 2030. We're investing $7.5 billion to build electric vehicle charging stations all across America. But this race to reduce our carbon footprint has some hidden tolls. This week, we're looking at what it takes to make an electric vehicle. We're traveling to some unexpected places and discovering the human, environmental, and geopolitical costs of this production line. And we'll walk through how we, as consumers, can square all of this with the very real benefits that these cars have on the climate. Yesterday, we went to South Africa, where we heard about the hidden costs on workers mining for manganese, another critical mineral for electric cars. Today, our reporting takes us to the mountains of Afghanistan, where we'll dig into the uncomfortable geopolitics of lithium. We follow Jerry's journey to find out firsthand what's happening as the country realizes its untapped potential. 
So, Jerry, let's start at the beginning of your journey in Afghanistan, into these mines. You landed in Kabul and then headed into these mountains. What is that area like? Yeah, so these are mountains in the eastern part of the country. This is kind of at the edge of the Hindu Kush mountains. Um, you know, these are uh, parts of the country um, that, you know, really have become iconic in the history of the 20-year American occupation. These are those rugged mountains where, uh, you know, U.S. Marines and soldiers would be posted uh, on, you know, mountaintop bunkers. It was the site of some of the bloodiest fighting for the U.S. forces when uh, the U.S. was in Afghanistan. It was certainly an arduous journey. When you're in the valley itself, you know, the roads there, part of it is great because, you know, it was paved probably during the time of the U.S. occupation. But then, you know, there were other parts of it that were, you know, essentially just full of uh, massive boulders, uh, really bad conditioned roads. There were parts where there were bomb craters from during the, the war at the very top of the valley where the road really kind of, you know, peters out into, into nothingness. That's where we ultimately found some of the miners. Huh? He said, like, it depends on your own risk, but there will be some gas. But if you want to go, you can go. The local miners spoke to us in Pashto through an interpreter. And the local miners said, you know, you guys are, are welcome. You are welcome to see what we're doing. Uh, just bear in mind that we had just set off some ammonia explosives inside. So there is still gas inside the mine. And it may be flammable. Or it may be a little bit unsafe, but enter at your own risk. And so we said, well, are you guys going in? And they said, yeah. So in we went. Holy It was about 70 yards deep. It's pitch black. It's damp. Uh, you're basically standing in, you know, puddles, pretty deep puddles of standing water. Um, and these guys are basically banging on their tools and taking turns, uh, you know, putting a jackhammer to the rock. You know, wh wh whenever they drill, it's uh, it just kicks a huge amount of dust into the air, and so you're you know you're basically for a couple of moments in this pitch black shaft in this cloud of of, of gray dust, and and you can't see anything. And Jerry, while you're in the mine, I mean, you're meeting people kind of in there. They had just sort of detonated explosives, and they're in there kind of picking through the aftermath. And you meet someone named Hussein Wafamel. What's his story? Yeah, so Hussein was actually uh, a former uh, commando for the Afghan army. So he fought the Taliban. <laughs> like the Americans betrayed us. <laughs> you know, he's this kind of you know stocky, really muscled guy. Um, you know, in his probably late thirties, early forties. And, uh, you know, there he was outside this mine in his old sort of tattered, um, you know, olive garb uh, with his men. Basically, after the fall of Kabul, they all lost their jobs. How much money was he making before as a commando? Like 25000 Yeah. 
They were making about $200, $250 a month. It was a pretty good living serving in the army. Uh, after the fall of Kabul, of course, his unit was disbanded. Uh, the Taliban had granted him clemency, so they didn't come after him personally, but he was out of a job. Suddenly, he's struggling to make ends meet. So is there no other work for them in the village other than mining? Like... Uh, because they're all were working, the government employees, they all have nothing except for mining. And they decided to, you know, essentially explore the mountains and see where they could search for these gemstones, including Kunzite. And now for this, like, how much can he make? It's like, depends on the luck. And they basically told us, look, you know, we've been doing okay business, uh, digging these uh, gemstones out of the mine. But the thing that we're really sitting on is heaps of this quote-unquote, you know, waste gemstone, which was lithium. Yeah, they just leave it there. What stands out to you about this place? It's, it feels like there's in some ways, a dueling significance, partially because of our history there during the war, but because of the long tradition of mining that appears to be happening here, too. Can you sort of walk us through all of that? So I think, you know, there's a great irony in the lithium industry of Afghanistan and where we are today. It was originally the Soviets who, in the 1960s and 70s, had come and you know, they were the first ones to essentially publish their findings, saying that, you know, there is uh, tremendous amounts of lithium in the hills of Kunar and Nuristan. Uh, of course, in the 1980s, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. By all accounts, the Soviet takeover was meticulously planned and skillfully executed. Which played a great role in the eventual fall of the Soviet Union. After the United States invaded Afghanistan in 2001 in the wake of September 11. Explosions over Kabul, over Kandahar, over Jalalabad. The call to arms from the U.S. Commander-in-Chief in the treaty room at the White House. The battle is now joined on many fronts. We will not waver. The U.S. Geological Survey also went in. At that time, there was a task force with the Pentagon that basically was exploring for ways in which we could help Afghanistan with nation building. And they had settled on this idea that this is literally one of the most mineralized places on earth. Afghanistan has massive deposits of gold, of copper, and of course lithium. And so the uh, Pentagon at one point uh, had in their internal memos called Afghanistan potentially the Saudi Arabia of lithium because they were so hopeful that you know the underground wealth buried there could really uh, prove to be this massive fountain of wealth for the country. Of course, this idea to sort of tap Afghanistan's lithium or other mineral resources never really took off. And when the U.S. pulled out in 2021... Chaos unfolded at the airport in Kabul as American forces withdrew from the country and Afghans scrambled to escape. That was that.
so Jerry, we pull out of the country, but we know there's a ton of lithium there, which we and many other countries will need. And at the same time, there are plenty of these struggling miners, like the ones you met in the mountains, who are just surrounded by this stuff and they can't really do anything with it. What's what's preventing them from getting it out? Well, what a lithium miner would need to do is extract hundreds of thousands of tons of this rock, put it into giant trucks, transport hundreds of tons of this rock bearing lithium into a processing plant where they can sift through it and then use massive amounts of electricity to subject the ore to chemical processes from which they can then leach out the lithium that could then be further processed into something that would go eventually into your Tesla battery, let's say. So this truly isn't something Hussein can manage on his own. He might be able to dig some bits out of the out of the ground or out of the walls of the mine, but in order to actually extract the goods, that's truly a, a team effort at the very least. That's right. I mean, just consider what goes into the production of an EV battery. That's a very, very sort of long and economically uh, complex calculus that you have to make. Um, now, remember, this is one of the most remote places in arguably the world. Roads are terrible. But on the other hand, the international demand for lithium may rise something like 30 to 40 times uh, in the next 20, 30 years. And as prices continue to go up, as uh, demand continues to outstrip supply, there will be companies that will want to tap Afghanistan, no matter how costly or how difficult it will be to, to bring those resources to market. So demand for lithium is kind of exploding, and there's plenty of it in Afghanistan where the miners don't have the resources to extract it. Who's, who's kind of capitalizing on that void? Yeah, so that's where the Chinese come in. You know, some of them had read about uh, lithium on the internet, and after the fall of Kabul in August 2021, they showed up. They were really kind of these globetrotting entrepreneurs, and... From their perspective, Afghanistan was an incredible opportunity. You know, their mantra was, this is a country that had decades of war, and for the first time, it may be possible to do business there. Because of the decades of war, there hadn't really been any kind of, you know, licenses given out to mine. A lot of this, you know, these mountains are untouched. And so that's what really attracted a lot of them to Kabul. I hate to make a sort of America-centric observation, but it does kind of sound like, you know, 1848 California gold rush vibe a bit, doesn't it? Precisely. That's exactly what it was. Up next, what happens when these prospectors rush in and the Taliban's response? We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. 
Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Okay, Jerry, we've just learned about the massive untapped lithium reserves in the mountains of Afghanistan. Tell me about the people coming here from China who are trying to cash in on it. Who did you meet? You know, I was in Kabul and I was talking to some of the the Chinese miners that were still there. And there were uh, essentially Chinese businesses that were packed into this local Chinese-run hotel. It was a nine-story building. There were guys sort of, you know, on the top floor in this hot pot restaurant there were guys in the basement playing mahjong around the clock. I mean, it really was something that that, that nobody had ever seen before. Uh, all told, there were maybe about 300 Chinese who showed up, was what I heard. Jeez. You know, I, I was sort of just shooting the breeze with them in Chinese, and they would say, yeah, you know, I came from Hunan province, I came from Manchuria, you know, I came from northwest China, I came from Beijing. They had been all over the world. Uh, sort of striking mining deals in in all types of sort of frontier markets, uh, and uh, and you know they were pretty grizzled uh, and and rough. And 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 to be honest, a couple of them, you know, they loved it in Afghanistan. They all had Taliban assigned bodyguards, you know, and it was just kind of this surreal glimpse into the lives of these guys who've just you know somehow were attracted to this place and settled down, and 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 there they were, you know, having like noodle soup and bok choy, uh, you know, for lunch, you know, alongside their Taliban bodyguards. So, Jerry, were there any other sort of visual indicators that China is really interested in mining in Afghanistan and doing business there? I mean, if you were to walk out of the Kabul airport today, the first thing that greets you really is this huge billboard basically facing the passenger terminal. It's not written in English. It's not written in uh, Dari or Persian. It is literally in giant Chinese characters. Uh, and it says, uh, which literally translates to the Belt and Road Initiative is the bridge spanning China and Afghanistan. So the Belt and Road is Chinese President Xi Jinping's signature international infrastructure program. This is the rubric that uh, China has been operating with for roughly the past decade in terms of expanding its economic influence around the world. It's not necessarily a signal that uh, what's happening in Afghanistan is part of a grand Communist Party strategy. In fact, a lot of these guys told me that they were there um, even sort of uh, against the wishes of their government. They were there really to, to sort of you know, strike out and make a fortune in this new gold rush. But this is the rubric under which many Chinese entrepreneurs uh, have been using essentially to sort of advertise uh, their business interests, their investments, um, to say, hey, we're Chinese, we're operating under this big push by China to expand across the world, and we're here to, to open up shop. So this massive 
you know, proclamation of, of China-Afghanistan partnership. This wasn't put up by the Communist Party. Can you tell us more about who was responsible for the billboard and why China is so interested in doing business there? This was literally the handiwork of one man, a local Chinese businessman named Yu Minghui. We sat down, he starts telling me his story, and he says, you know, I first came to Afghanistan when I was 30. He says for the first time. He was born into a pretty working class family in this village in the middle of China next to the famous Shaolin Temple. And he originally started um, going to Iran uh, to do import-export. You literally told me that he was basically in Iran just for a year when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. And so right after that, he decided to go over and just have a look around. He thought, hmm, maybe I could move next door in this country that is now uh, no longer controlled by the Taliban, but by the U.S., uh, to further my business prospects there. And it was in 2021 when the Chinese started arriving in droves that he thought, finally, after 20 years, uh, you know, my dream of, of you know, essentially setting up this Chinese chamber of commerce, if you will, uh, is really going to take off. Yu Minghui tells me that he also recalled hundreds of people showing up in Kabul. And you told me that when the Chinese entrepreneurs showed up, they would show up asking to get into the battery business. And he had told me that they were already stocking power tools, they were stocking sort of electrical wiring in anticipation of Chinese companies coming in, including mining companies, coming into Afghanistan and really making a push in terms of investment. Jerry, what happened when all of these traders from China started visiting the mountains and, and scouting out locations? Like, did Afghanistan welcome them with open arms? At first, they did, uh, until things sort of took a turn late last year. First, uh, the Islamic State, in order to undermine uh, the Taliban regime, began targeting the Chinese. You can see fire as well as dark thick smoke billowing out of uh, uh, the building there. This is believed to be a guest house uh, that is popular with Chinese visitors. Uh, So they bombed the hotel that once, you know, was really sort of a hub of Chinese life in Kabul. Four people died. You know, it sent shockwaves to the Chinese community. Many people left. Um, And then after that, the Taliban also began to announce new rules that would restrict private mining of lithium and forbid anybody from taking lithium out of the country. In fact, at one point in January, the Taliban arrested a Chinese businessman who had filled many, many trucks full of lithium ore and was planning to drive this stuff out of Afghanistan's eastern borders into Pakistan. Uh, And the Taliban were essentially um, making an example out of him because from the Taliban's perspective, they didn't want any of this chaos. They didn't want the prospectors coming in and, you know, rummaging through the mountains at night. Man, okay, so this whole thing has gotten really tense 
What more did you learn about the Taliban's thinking looking ahead, you know, about the growing demand for lithium and electric cars? Where does it go from here? A Pashto interpreter and I sat down with a Taliban leader. He was acting Minister of Mines, Shahabuddin Dilawar. So uh, thank you for seeing us. Uh, first of all, uh, we know lithium right now is one of the world's... Uh, and he basically told us that Afghanistan is open for business. It welcomes international investment. And for us, like the Chinese, Americans, Russians, Canadians, uh, like Emirati. Emiratis, and also Qatar, they're all the same for us. We don't put any difference among them. Uh, it's, like, it's like dealing, so we will just look after the benefits of the country. Delawar literally said, we'll be considering our national interest in the deals. And he's been taking offers from companies in Qatar, in the UAE. Uh, there was interest from Europe. And there was absolutely interest from China, or so he claimed. Yesterday, uh, they brought a, like, uh, so, uh, an application, this company. He said that just a, a day before uh, we showed up uh, at his office, he had been entertaining an offer from a Chinese company uh, that was uh, proposing to put $10 billion in Afghanistan. It was proposing to invest in new roads. It was in f- proposing to build a refinery in you know, a place that could be potentially Kunar or Noristan. And of course, he said that even the U.S. was welcome to invest. You're welcome. You're welcome after you took all these things out of the Realistically, we know that that's not going to happen, given that the Taliban are currently under sanction by the Biden administration, for its pretty horrific human rights record. But uh, uh, really, the most uh, likely investors in Afghanistan uh, would be China. He believes that uh, international demand for lithium is only going to go up, and that he and, um, you know, I guess the Taliban and the people of Afghanistan are sitting on a huge trove of this uh, valuable stuff. He believes that there is tremendous interest internationally in developing it. Thank you so much. And of course, you know, the the subtext is this could really make Taliban-controlled Afghanistan wealthy. And there would be a great irony if it were actually Chinese companies that were developing these resources that the U.S. also wants, that were as a result, propping up the Taliban directly encounter with U.S. interests, given that the Biden administration and I'm sure ensuing U.S. administrations would want to continue a policy of isolating the Taliban and applying pressure to it for as long as it refuses to change its hardline policies on the treatment of women. And so if it turned out that it was the Chinese that was actually propping up the Taliban, after the departure of the U.S., it would certainly be a a pretty ironic twist in the history of the country. I mean, doesn't this whole thing raise, I don't know, to me at least, it raises a a handful of ethical questions about electric vehicles, right? Like, if these cars, which are only surging in popularity, and in states like California where I live, where we're just going to not sell internal combustion engine cars after a specific year, it very much feels like a fait accompli, right? Like, electric cars are the future, 
But how do we square that growing demand with the fact that some of this lithium might be coming from Afghanistan, which obviously has a, a history of human rights abuses? Like, what does this all feel like for you to kind of work through? I mean, I think it's just another one of these kind of side effects of the global EV boom that we've seen that are unintended, right? You know, we've seen sort of the the effect in, on pollution of the environment uh, for um, EV ingredients. Uh, we've seen, you know, the health and human toll that mining for some of these ingredients have. Um, and so I guess when we consider holistically the pros of this great shift towards EV, I mean, we also have to look at some of the unintended consequences. Perhaps if it's any consolation to you, Chris, one good thing may be that all of this at this point is still speculative when it comes to Afghanistan. So far, we haven't heard of a major Chinese deal to extract lithium from Afghanistan that would prop up the Taliban. I think long term, you know, it's very difficult, I think, to see any sort of rapprochement in the near future between the Taliban and the US. And if that is sort of the geopolitical landscape that we're looking at, really the only, I guess, fallback that the Taliban have to get out of its rut of being internationally isolated, uh, sort of you know, really locked down by financial sanctions, will be the Chinese. And I think in many ways, they're right in China's backyard. The Chinese government was, of course, you know, one of the biggest proponents of granting the Taliban legitimacy during the multilateral peace talks that led to um, the Taliban's takeover before August 2021, along with Russia and Iran and other powers. And so in many ways, I think the Chinese government has an interest in propping up the Taliban. It has interest in... I suppose, supporting them uh, financially and politically. And it has an interest in developing crucial resources that would benefit its own companies. And I think if we were to take a look at the long view, I think really, in some ways, it is a, a marriage made in heaven. This is a lot to wrestle with. But there is one final thing I want to ask about. We've heard about the governments involved in this situation, but what about the people in Afghanistan? Like Hussein Mufamel, the DIY miner that you met in the mountains. He was once an Afghan commando working with the U.S., and now he's just trying to feed his family with what he can extract from those mountains. What's his reaction to this situation? You know, what is he hoping for out of all of this? Yeah, so while these conversations, however inconclusive they may be, are progressing in Kabul, uh, you know, you definitely have guys like Hussein Wafamel up in the mountains uh, in uh, Nuristan province who are hoping for the day to come. Sometimes, yeah, like we, even sometimes we struck like tons of them. You know, he says that, you know, it's been a tough slog for us the last couple of years and, you know. If they, like, remove this plant? As soon as uh, a, a major international player comes in, We'll have new tools, we'll have more jobs, we'll have better roads. Yeah, they said like that would be better. And life will be better. You know, he told me that, you know, he wants the investment. He has recently been uh, lobbying uh, the local Taliban leaders to let him to mine and extract and sell lithium ore. And they've basically told him, just be patient, just hold off, 
pretty soon there's a good chance that we'll have a a contract with a major foreign investor. And from Wafamel's perspective, he 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 can't wait. Would he potentially welcome like Chinese uh, investment? We will honestly work with full honesty. Wow, so he's saying he honestly would, with full honesty, he would welcome Chinese investment. Jerry, thank you so much for talking to me about this today. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure, Chris. Thanks. Jerry Shi is the India Bureau Chief for The Washington Post, who also covers neighboring countries. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. We had help from Tanya Chavla, Eliza Dennis, Murwise Mohammadi, and Alan Cypress. I'm your guest host, Chris Velasco. We'll be back tomorrow with the final episode in our series, where we connect the dots and unpack the big questions we've raised about the hidden toll within the global electric vehicle supply chain. <laughs>